you so much for the very warm welcome and the, and the prayer. Um, well, good morning, Abounding Grace Church. We're so thankful to be here, and as um, Pastor Shannon mentioned, uh, there's half of us here. We have half of our family here. We, uh, my wife and I, we have the six kids. Again, three of them are at home, and we're so thankful. You know, if you, if you come from a big family or you have a big family with a lot of kids and they're kind of spaced out in age, when you get that, you know, the, uh, when you appreciate the fact that, you know, if they're spaced out like that, you kind of have built-in babysitters. And so we're so thankful for my 16-year-old who is at home uh, watching the, the twin boys who are just getting over an ear infection. So uh, they're, it, it's, it's better for them that they're there, and he's just a he's really reliable guy. So uh, we're, we're very thankful that he's there, even though he wanted to be here with you guys as well. So we have uh, uh, my wife who just went out with our youngest, and then the, we have uh, Eden over here and Deacon right there. Deacon's 13 and Eden's 10. So we have half the group here, uh, and the other half are at home, but hopefully they'll be watching and be able to tune in or listen. They'll be able to listen in. So anyways, just a, just a little bit of a, a brief background about us. We are here in California from Georgia. If you didn't already pick up my accent, I'm sure that you, you know, you will. So, uh, we, yeah, we're here from Georgia, northeast Georgia, a little bit, probably about two hours north, maybe 100 miles, something like that, north of Atlanta. They gives you some context. And um, we moved out here five years ago uh, to take a position. I took a position as a youth pastor in Clovis. Clovis is actually where we live. The Clovis-Fresno area is where we live, uh, even though we go to church. And I work at Grace Church of the Valley and that's where we uh, attend. So I was a youth pastor for, uh, for almost those five years. We've been at Grace Church of the Valley since January. And I've been in seminary there at the distance location. Um, uh, so we've been there since January. Like I said, I was a youth pastor prior to that. Um, so my, uh, you know, that's been my experience. So I'm always thankful then, now that I'm kind of in a different role, uh, I'm serving on the facilities team at the church, and they're so gracious to, to be able to, you know, to employ me, and God's providence there uh, to employ me there while I'm going to seminary. So I'm always thankful for these opportunities to come and preach, to do what I'm called to do. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of get, gotten me to a place where I appreciate it so much more, uh, you know, the, to be able to come and, you know, come and do this. So anyways, with that said, uh, again, thank you so much. And if you will, you can go ahead and uh, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be, this morning, it's just going to be three verses, verses 8 through 10. Um, And this is kind of a a developing section here because Paul, the Apostle Paul, has uh, made a very deep theological argument in chapters 1, or chapter 1. And of course, then he had that, uh, that beautiful section that we heard this morning that was read about Christ. Just, uh, it, it's almost as if he was just overflowing with the Holy Spirit and uh, went into this, went into this uh, reflection on who Christ is. So we're so thankful for that. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you again for the ability to come here, for the ability, Lord, that you could take a uh, a sinner, a sinful man, and that you could uh, bring him to this place to be able to say, thus saith the Lord. And it's nothing in me, it's nothing in any of us, but it's all you. It's by your grace, by your mercy. Lord, you have provided those things, and we've, uh, we were singing songs this morning that were exalting you and lifting up your name, and we're so thankful to be able to do that. And then the brother praying, Lord, that uh, it's just, it's only by your grace and mercy, only by your revelation that we can know you to the point that we can, that you've allowed us to. We're so thankful for that. Lord, we pray over your word this morning. We see a major contrast here between the world and Christ, between philosophy, empty, deception, and Christ. Lord, we, as we do this, 
as we get into this, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the guide. I pray that you would teach us, that you would lead us into wisdom. The ultimate goal is not information, but transformation. Though there is so much here, I know that in myself, I'm definitely unworthy to do this, to bring this, because it's so full, so full of life, so full of so many amazing truths, astounding words. We thank you for your word. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So I pray that you would work in us, as the other brothers have prayed also this morning. Lord, be glorified, be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, coming together in Colossians right here, we're kind of introduced to an argumentative portion of the, of the text of, the, of, this, of this entire letter. And, um, and it's, it's a little bit different, even though this is common to Paul. This is something that he does. Uh, it's a little bit different in the, in the sense that he's not necessarily arguing something that has already happened, but could possibly happen. Or most scholars would probably say that this is something that, uh, this was a burden that Epaphras had, and we were, we'll uh, discuss him in just a few moments, but this is a burden, uh, and this was a possibility. This is something they saw coming. Uh, so that's what we're going to take a look at here this morning. Uh, just a little bit of background on this. Uh, with Colossae, uh, it's important to, to know that this is, it's one of three cities in the, in the Lycus Valley. And the other ones are Hierapolis and Laodicea. And of course, you guys probably are familiar with Laodicea being in the book of Revelation. That's one of the seven churches that the letters were written to. So uh, it's in the, uh, like I said, it's in the Lycus Valley. It's named that because of the Lycus River. So these are, this is a, you know, this is a small town, probably churches in each town, maybe, maybe one, maybe one gathering in each of those uh, little towns. But Epaphras, he's an important figure in this letter, and Epaphras is the one who takes this to Paul. He's the one who goes to Paul. Now, Paul uh, and Epaphras uh, met in Ephesus. We read that in the book of Acts, and he probably led Epaphras to, to Christ. And then Epaphras comes to visit Paul while he's in prison in Rome. Uh, so he brings him this news of whatever it was, whatever this philosophy was, and we don't know that. He doesn't, he doesn't name it specifically, or at least not that I could see. Somebody else might be able to tell me different, but um, this is what he's after. He go, he's, he's burdened with this, so he goes to Paul, and then Paul is writing this letter back and having him take it back to the church at Colossae and then wants others to read it as well. So dealing with false teachers and other issues within the church is something that uh, like I said, was a regular thing uh, for Paul. And here, there's really not any besetting sins necessarily, like you would read in the book of Corinthians or otherwise uh, besetting sins. It seems like that mostly, uh, for the most part, what uh, Epaphras took to Paul was good news. He, he had a good report, and, and this seems to be the only thing. So most of it is, most of it is, uh, is pos- positive affirmation of the church's sanctification, as well as the um, the fact that uh, Paul is praying for them and lifting them up, and uh, they are they're learning and growing. So this is where we are. But again, here in chapter two, Paul is going to deal with a philosophy that the church was in danger of being carried away by. And, and again, we don't know what that is. Whatever it was, uh, it had a Paphros burden, like I already said. So he was ready to take that to Paul. Um, and there's one thing I want to uh, uh, touch on here because we, we're looking at these verses that, that say, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. The way that that reads, it might sound like philosophy in general is something that we want to avoid. But I think that we probably need to clear that up as we are. Um, as Paul reminds them, uh, as a maturing church, he just reminds them to be on guard, to be watchful. Uh, for the counterfeits, as every church should. Now, philosophy in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's just the love of wisdom or the love of knowledge. Uh, and, and that's something that even believers, I mean, we have a philosophy, right, of, of the way that we do things. I, I just took a course called, the, uh, you know, philosophy of ministry. So where I had to develop biblically a philosophy of ministry. So philosophy in and of itself is not a bad thing, and that's what he's, what he's addressing here is empty, deceptive philosophy. And I think that might even be a better way of saying it, where the, most of the scriptures uh, have it, philosophy and empty deception. 
or it could be empty, deceptive philosophy, and that might be an easier way of looking at it, but it's, philosophy is, is just the love of knowledge. And there's, you know, throughout all history, man has had a fascination with wisdom. This we know. There have been thousands upon thousands of philosophers that go all the way back to, uh, to Plato and, uh, you know, and then others, you know what I'm saying? We have these, we, we have them all through the history books and we learn about them. We learn about Greek philosophers and all of their thoughts and the things that uh, most of you guys, if you were in school, you know, in the 80s and 90s and even before, you learned about a lot of this. I don't know about now how much the education uh, has changed. I'm not sure about how it works now, but if you, if you pick up on that, then you know what I'm talking about. You were in, you know, you were in school during those times when we learned about a lot of that stuff. So we know that all through time, uh, and all through uh, history, it, it's, it's something that people have chased. It's something that people have pursued. And it really comes down to uh, man wanting to answer the questions, wanting to answer universal questions about life, about what is life here for? What are we here for? What is the purpose of life? Where did things begin? How did they get here? You know, how were things, how were things made? How did, they, how did things come into existence? And these are all fine questions. These are all fine uh, things to ponder and things to wonder about. But there's an answer to it. There's an answer and then there are other things that are, that are error. So there's truth and there's error in all of this. And that's the thing to grasp from it. The problem is when man uh, uh, looking for truth within themselves. And that's what they do. They look for truth within themselves uh, as opposed to receiving the truth from the Lord. From the counselor and the creator. And the Bible's clear that the Holy Spirit is the source of truth. As a matter of fact, look at 1 Corinthians 2, 9, and 11, 9 through 11. You don't have to turn there, but you can. If you, if you want to mark your Bible, you can definitely do this because this is important. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. But, but as it is written, things which eye has, hath not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men, who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And this is the issue. In Paul's day, and in that letter, the, uh, uh, the teaching of the philosophers, primarily the Epicureans and the Stoics, those are two, uh, two sects of, of philosophy, of thought. Um, and the church had to deal with that philosophy, had to deal with those things for centuries. And have, even to this point, even now. We're still dealing with it. Whether we realize that or not, we're dealing with still man's ideas. And uh, man's impressions coming onto society and then eventually into the church. And we'll, we'll see that. So let's dig into the text right here as we are again. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's just the, the first part of the, uh, of the verse, of verse 8 there. So Paul writes, see to it. This phrase is in the present tense, which is going to suggest that it's an ongoing habitual act. It's something that, uh, you know, Paul wanted the Colossians to be on alert and on guard. And the thing about it is, like I said, it's, it's, it's something that's ongoing. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just, you know, when you look up at one time and see a danger coming. It's a, it's a consistency. It's the need for consistency. It's a need for consistently being on guard. And that's what Paul wanted them to do. You think about, think about your family. If you're a man, you have, you have a wife, you have kids. You want to be on guard, don't you? You want to be on guard. You want to be alert to things. You want to be alert to ideas. You want to be alert to philosophies. And people, I think it's just that we don't really use those words, but you've probably heard someone along the way say somewhere, well, this is how I see it. Or this is how I think it is. Right? And that's a philosophy. That's a way that they think. They, this is the way they think the world is. Whatever it is. This is how they think it works. Whatever that is. But people have ideas about how they think it works. And you want to be on guard. Are you a, a wife? Are you a mom? You have the kids. You have the kids at home. You have the kids going to school. Whatever that looks like. You have grandkids. You have grown kids. You want to be on guard. Your church fellowship. You want to be on guard, don't you? Because there are things that come from all kinds of directions. 
all kinds of ideas that are counterfeits, that are ultimately counterfeits to the truth, to the one truth, and that's the Word of God. So, again, Paul wanted the Colossians to be on guard. But this is not to be, meant to be taken as paranoia. It's not meant to be taken that way. We don't need to be uh, cynical. He didn't want his readers, Paul didn't want his readers to be cynical. He didn't want them to be bitter. He didn't want any of that. But because of the truth that Satan is constantly looking to destroy the church, the Colossians needed to be alert and wise. Peter echoes Paul in 1 Peter 5, 8 when he says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to completely devour. Because this is true, we're called to engage in the battle. We're called to engage. Peter exhorts us in 2 Peter 3, 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. That's an interesting statement when he says unprincipled men because many of these arguments to the majority of you, I would say, are going to sound completely irresponsible. They're going to sound like to most of us, to, to, uh, to those of you who have been taught the Word of God, they're going to sound like unprincipled arguments. They're going to sound like unfounded arguments. But we have young people too, don't we? We have young people coming up. We have those who are, who are coming up and learning and needing to learn and needing to be taught the truth. And we have to be proactive with that, don't we? We have to be proactive with teaching the truth. The attitude here, again, is not to be cynical. The attitude is to be prayerful. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 6.18 says it this way, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This especially goes for leadership, I would say. This is the attitude of a joyful watchman. That's what this is. It's a joyful watchman. Not in an anxious spirit, but a healthy burden. To protect each other in the flock of God. So this is for the church as a whole. And Paul knew false teaching would arise as others did as well. In fact, consider Paul's declaration, if you will, in Acts 20. And this is, this is an astounding, this is another astounding uh, uh, scripture here in Acts 20, verses 28 through 31. When Paul is uh, coming up on the time of his departure. And he says this, be on guard. When he's leaving them, when they're separating, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there it is again. Be on guard. Be on guard. Be alert. Continuously be alert. Um, as, uh, as he has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's a high standard. He says this, I know that after my departure... Savage wolves, savage wolves will come from among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears." So for those three years, Paul was consistently reminding them of this. It's that's not something that we always want to hear. It's probably not something that they wanted to, be, wanted to hear. But it's amazing how quickly things can turn. You remember Jesus' conversation with Peter when Peter made that incredible declaration. When he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed that and said, this wasn't told to you by man. This was told to you by God. This was revealed to you by God himself. And then just a few verses later, what happens? He turns around and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. How quickly we can go from the truth to error. Based on what? Based on our own thoughts. Based on our own ideas. Our own concepts. The way we think it is. 
And that's what, Peter, that's what Peter had done. The way he thinks it is, that's what made sense to him. But Paul here is laboring for years, and that's what our leaders are called to do. That's what we as leaders, that's men, husbands, fathers, church leaders, this is what we're called to do. Ladies as well are called to labor for one another, to admonish each other with tears, with a, with a burden to care for the flock of God. So what is it? What is it exactly that he wants them to avoid being taken captive to? Well, it's empty, deceptive philosophy, like I mentioned earlier. Look at the second part of verse 8, philosophy and empty deception. Because this is the method by which the readers could be taken captive. Paul says this. Do not be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men. According to the elementary principles of the world. Rather than according to Christ. Rather than according to Christ. So their arguments are persuasive. It's not always that easy to see. Their arguments are plausible. As a matter of fact, Paul tells them just a few verses earlier that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why does he tell them that? In verse 3, so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. No one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Their arguments can be very persuasive. Very misleading. And if we're not grounded in the truth, if we're in a place where we're, we're seeing two sides, where we're seeing a lot of views on something, some of these arguments can be persuasive. Some of us undoubtedly can be pulled away to think in ungodly ways. To embrace ungodly concepts and I know that as I'm looking out at you and looking out at Abounding Grace Church I know that you probably have many things in your head you probably have a lot of things that you're thinking about in that, in that vein in that way right our society is full of it full of these things full of these arguments full of these persuasive sounding arguments persuasive to the world hopefully not to the church but we know that does happen we know that that's possible so that's what Paul is telling them. Paul is refuting this idea. But one of the things about these philosophers is that they were after a higher knowledge. They were after always, consistently, after a higher plane of knowledge. They were after, they were after something more than what Christ was. More than what the Christian church had. That's what they wanted. And they would, they would say that. They would say that we have more knowledge. We have a higher knowledge. We've gotten to, we've broken through this, this, uh, the, this Christian plateau of Christ only and we're going higher. We're, we're doing better than that. And now we're enamored, our society, our culture for years, it's not new, has been enamored with the concept of information, information, information. And now it's, it's, it's at the ready, isn't it? It's at the fingertips, anything you want. I often say, whatever you're looking for, Whatever information, whatever your idea, whatever it is that you're looking for, you can find it. You can definitely find it. It doesn't take long. No matter what the error is, no matter what the falsehood is, no matter uh, what this false teaching is, if you are looking for it, you can find it. I think we know that. You can definitely find it. You, you can definitely find what you're looking for if that's what you're looking for. But we also have the truth. We have the truth. We have the word of God in front of us. So these false teachers are attempting to persuade this church that was in, in Colossae that's around for that's been around for maybe six years at this time. So that's a young fellowship. That's a relatively young fellowship. You know, back in Georgia, we're used to, I don't know how long you guys have been around and, and some of the other churches, but you know, we're used to churches that uh, you know, our, our our home church back east. You know, it says on the, you know, established in, you know, 1786 or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's been around for a long time. So, you know, this, this, this church, especially in the first century, 
They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the scriptures in total the way that we do. They were going to get this letter that we're in today. They were going to get that and read it and copy it and spread it around. They were going to do that. But they didn't have what we have today. So that was a young church just coming into, uh, just coming into this. And they're surrounded by, their city is full of these philosophers. Undoubtedly some Jewish, but many of them Greek philosophers. They were endowed with them. So they had whatever idea they could be looking for. So anytime, anytime they brought up Christ or anytime they mentioned uh, Christ and they mentioned his death and resurrection, there was probably a ready rebuttal. There was probably someone saying, no, there's a higher knowledge. And these philosophers were known for not necessarily rejecting the belief that there is a God of some sort, but they believed in many gods. But what they did not believe was that we had the ability to know those gods. That those, those gods didn't have time for us. They didn't have time to get to know anybody. And you couldn't know them in that way. So Paul is refuting them sharply by saying what he said. That in Christ, in Christ, the man Christ Jesus specifically... The man that you know about, the man that I told you about, the man that you believed in, who was here on earth, that we said is the God-man. God in the flesh. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is a sharp rebuttal to those philosophers. And it's so critically important that we understand this. They thought they had a super knowledge. But there's no nobler knowledge than the word of God. There's no greater insight than what we have. There's no superior revelation. It doesn't matter what they claim. We have the word of God. And it's not to puff us up, is it? No, because knowledge puffs up. It's not in us. It's in Christ And then when Christ dwells in us, we have what? We have the mind of Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians. We have the mind of Christ. This is uh, an an incredible statement. So the thing about this philosophical argument that they had, and by the way, he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't necessarily name what it is. He doesn't necessarily tell us all that's involved. There's a lot more to it, but it involved a couple of things. And it's inadequate. For two specific reasons. One is that it's according to the traditions of men. One thing was Judaism. It's according to the traditions of men. The Judaizers were stuck in tradition. Now once again, there's nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself, is there? We have traditions. We have church traditions. And they're great traditions. But it's not because they're traditions. Their tradition, because it's truth, it's based on the truth, based on the word of God. These men, it was not so. In Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said to his disciples, watch out, right? There it is again, watch out, see to it, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this had an element of legalism for sure. And the captivity uh, that some were falling into because of that. The second thing is because it's uh, the second uh, um, inadequate element is the fact that it was... Uh, the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. So, or your translation might say the rudiments of the world. The King James Version says rudiments. So what is that? What are the rudiments? It's not an easy term uh, to necessarily define, but it's kind of like the, the ABCs, the, 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 the foundations of an idea, whatever it is. Like, we, you know, you start, out when you start out learning, you're teaching your kids the ABCs. That's kind of what it is. That's kind of a, uh, uh, that's what the, the rudiments, these elementary principles. These are actually very low-minded things. Which is an incredible thing to think about because people are being taken captive by this or they're in danger of being taken captive by this. By these people who want to sound, uh, have the, the high-sounding argument, have a higher level of knowledge. But they didn't actually have that. They just had these, these ABCs, the rudimentary, elementary principles of the world. 
Who are the people that have the higher knowledge? Who are the people that have this, that have this inexhaustible knowledge? Look around you. Look around you. It's you. It's you. It's Christ's church. It's the people of God. And again, that's not to, that's not to puff us up. But when I think about this, one thing that, one thing that is, a, uh, is a major illustration is the entire framework of modern psychology. I don't even need to use the word modern, but psychology in and of itself. Psychology, as it is, is starkly opposed, diametrically opposed to the Word of God. And you're watching society be labeled in so many ways, be labeled with so many things, and the ultimate goal is to alleviate, or I believe, to alleviate the concept of sin. It's to alleviate the guilt that comes along with behavior from the thought life to the actions to the words. It's the, it's the, the goal is to alleviate that. The goal is to wipe that out. It's to wipe out the concept of sin. I've even heard people talk about how they're, they're, they've come to me in, in counseling and I'm by no means adequate. But because I was a youth pastor... I had parents who would come to me and say, I need, to, I need to figure out how to help my kid, help my child get over this guilt that they have. Get over the guilt. What are they doing? Well, this is what they're doing. And, and you know, I, I took them to see someone and they, they, they said that they can't help it. That they can't help this behavior. That they can't help what they're doing. They can't help how they're treating people. So then we opened the Word of God. And say, but, you know, here we find out that the Lord is going to hold us accountable for that behavior. So what do you do then? Well, my presupposition is, this is the word of God. It can't be outdone. There is no other answer. But they want to alleviate sin. And my my plea is no don't do that let sin let that guilt draw them to the cross but psychology psychology is doing just that because all these behaviors are labeled with whatever label they can put on it with a a disorder of some kind and believe me, there are, there are issues. I'm not saying that at all. I'm talking about the behaviors that we can see clearly outlined in the Scripture that God deals with. That's what I'm talking about here. And the goal of psychology is to do that, is to, uh, by some standard, some belief that this is a higher knowledge, that psychology has a higher knowledge, that the, that the, the Bible, even though it talks about this stuff, is eclectic, it's old, Come on now. We have, to, we have to go along with the advancements. Right? We have to go along with the advancements. This is dangerous. It's a dangerous, dangerous error. What about evolution? It's been around for a long time. One of, the major, one of my major um, hills to die on, if you will, with the church is the six-day creation account. Six-day creation account. Given in Genesis, just as it is. Six literal 24-hour days. But that's been turned upside down. And it's amazing to me because I know that God knows how simple of a man I am. So he gave it to me simple. (laughs) He, he He could not have made it more simple for me. Why on earth would I think that I needed to go higher than that? That I needed to somehow dismantle that and somehow figure out how that's possible? 
I was thinking as the brother was praying how there is knowledge of God that we don't have. There's so much we couldn't contain it. We couldn't handle it. And some questions are okay unanswered. We don't have all the answers. And what I mean by that is when we think about how did it happen? How did he do this? We can't understand God to that level. But remember and never forget. However you want to say that, remember or never forget. That it's the Holy Spirit that teaches us. And this, the Word of God, the Gospel, and everything with it is what? It's foolishness to the world. God has made foolish the wisdom of the wise. And a fool says in his heart there is no God. So why would we think that the dying, unregenerate world would want to accept something so simple, would want to receive something so simple? But yet it is. But these theories that are completely unproven, we know that. I'm not up here on a soapbox. I just am giving us a couple of illustrations of what it looks like to consider these errors in our time. Kind of how we deal with it. The ways that we deal with it. The ways that we're seeing it now. Because these are, listen, this concept of even evolution. It's called a science. Psychology is called a science. But these really aren't sciences. These are philosophies. That's how they had their beginning, a philosophy. A man wondered. He wondered in himself. He thought in himself, like I talked about earlier. And didn't want to hear from the Word of God. Didn't want to hear what God had to say. He thought for himself. And this is what he came up with. And it's still happening in so many ways. Those are uh, just a couple of things. But the thing about it is, the point here that is in the in the in the concept here that's most formidable for us is the the fact that we see this coming into the church we see these ideas we see this compromise coming into the church i want you to think about this there's an interesting encounter in acts and you probably remember paul in athens remember paul uh when he was preaching in athens in uh chapter 17 when he has his uh that famous sermon on mars hill Uh, And I'm just going to read verses 16 through 18. He says this. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was what? Being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him Some of them were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others would say he seems to be proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, here, this is very interesting because when they call him an idle babbler, that means a word scavenger. It's like a it's like a bird just you know coming in and you know, just a scavenger, just getting whatever it can, you know, a seed scavenger, just getting whatever they can get. And that's how it works with a lot of these philosophies. You probably know. You've probably seen people. They, they, you know, they come over to here to this, you know, this idea and they slice a little bit of that off. And over here in this one, they take a little bit of that off. And they you know, take a little bit of yours and a little bit of you know, his and hers. And they throw it in a blender and blend it all up. And out comes whatever it is. But it's a blend. Scavengers. They take words And they're calling him an idle babbler. They thought that he was preaching more than one God, very likely. It's likely that they thought that he was preaching more than one God because he was talking about Christ, the man Christ Jesus. They didn't understand. And truthfully, the Epicureans and the Stoics were the ones who were those word scavengers. They were idea scavengers. That's what they did. That's what a secular philosopher does. And the futility is astounding. 
I think it was Bertrand Russell. I'm sure that you've heard of him. I'm sure that you've heard of the, the famous philosopher. And even on his deathbed, he talked about how philosophy amounted to nothing. All these years, the man was 90 years old when he passed away. And on his deathbed said, this, all of this philosophy is amounted to absolutely nothing. Imagine, imagine coming to the end of your life and that's all you have to say. That's all you have to think about. But you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. You don't have to do that. Because we have, like I said, the mind of Christ. We have the word of God. We have what Paul was teaching in Athens. As a matter of fact, he tells Timothy in, uh, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. There's that engagement again. We're called to guard what's been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter. And when Paul says worldly and empty chatter, he's talking again about what he's talking to the Colossians about. This philosophy, the philosophy, whatever it was, I'm actually glad he didn't point it out. I'm actually glad he didn't say it because we're, we need to understand that it's not just one thing. There's so many of these ideas floating around. He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid these empty arguments and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and listen to this, thus gone astray from the faith. As he already said before, he knew that this would happen. He knew this would, could possibly be an issue. And of course, we see that it is. So when you take these ideas, because now we live in a world, we live in a, a, a nation and a world where whatever goes... And yes, it's always been that way to some degree, but now we're seeing this take the form of law. And like so many uh, great theologians and pastors, MacArthur, John MacArthur, he's, he's uh, you know, uh, something he, I've heard him say many times is it's not new. It's not new, but it's repackaged. You could look at it like that. And now we have people who are confused or claim to be confused about gender. And things like that when it seems so simple. About relationships and what they should be and what marriage should be. But it seems so simple. The reason it seems so simple is because it in fact is. I'm okay with that. Like I said, I'm a simple guy. I'm okay with that. But once again, this is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's a, way, there's a way that seems right to a man, isn't there? There's a way that seems right, but in the end, where does it lead? Destruction. Total destruction. And I see this, these ideas, especially the ones I just mentioned. Churches are taking these ideas. They're taking these, these different philosophies and they're dropping them into the blender they're grinding them up and it's coming out in the pulpit. And that's the most dangerous place. I think it was Stephen Lawson. It was probably somebody else who said, as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes the culture. But this is happening. As a matter of fact, in my own life, I've seen this happen. And it saddens me to see churches become anemic, to become biblically anemic, to become weak. Because the preaching is not biblical preaching. We've seen this. We've been a part of this. My wife and I and our family have been a part of seeing this. The weakening of a fellowship because the preaching is more like a mixture of some Bible verses with some psychological jargon or some life coaching or whatever else you want to throw in there. Ideas, a blend, a mixture, if you will. 
but not the pure, unadulterated word of God because society says this is not enough. You can't do that anymore. You can't preach the Bible anymore. Either it's too harsh or it just can't help. It's just not enough. It's just not up to date. But the Word of God is living and active, isn't it? I encourage you, I encourage you, as Paul encourages you, to take up this challenge. Are you a junior higher? I have a son who's in junior high. Are you a high schooler? Take it up. You have people around you. You have opportunities. And again, this is not a, this is not a, a cynical thing. This is an opportunity. Because what I want to do is I want to think about the way that Paul refutes this argument. The manner. So what does he do? Does he, does he come over here and does he, take this, does he take this philosophy, whatever it is, and does he just rip it apart and dismantle it piece by piece and set it aside? No, he doesn't. And this is the part, this is the part that this morning uh, I've been so excited to get to. Because that's not what he does. He doesn't dismantle it with his own ideas. He doesn't reason in this way. Why? Paul was a brilliant mind. He's known as a brilliant theologian. You know that. Most of us know that. A brilliant theologian. There's probably a lot that he could say. But he wanted to smash the argument completely. And at the very same time, at the very same time, show us, tell his readers, his Colossians, what they had in Christ. So look at what he does. He doesn't take it apart piece by piece. But in verse 9 he says this. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is an incredible statement and foundational truth. The word Godhead means deity. It's what it means. And it's meant to express to us all the essence of who God is. Of all that He is. Everything God is is found in Christ. That's incredible. That knowledge is too high for us. But thankfully we have the Holy Spirit to lead us into the truth. How do we latch on to that? How do we latch on to that? What do we do with that? It's meant to express all that God is. He has a permanent residence in Christ. God has a permanent residence in Christ. And what's amazing is that if we have faith in Christ, if we are in Christ, we take up permanent residence there in Him. As a matter of fact, in, in, uh, in chapter 3, He says, Something incredible, verse 3, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are as much in God as Jesus is. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just just move your soul to, to sense that security, to live with the reality of that security? It's unsearchable, the greatness of God. To do that for us, it's wondrous that all the fullness of the Godhead is found in Christ. But like I said, how does this impact us as fallen human beings? Um, Many of the unbelieving philosophies of the past have expressed a belief, uh, like I said before, that God is too far above us. And if He hadn't given us His word... Well, then, some creator, some being is obvious through what we see in nature. It's obvious through the created work, through the created order. Once again, it's so simple that I can understand it. And again, I'm okay with that. 
It's obvious, right? If you see a, you see a watch laying on the beach, you know that there's a watchmaker, right? It's as simple as that. You see so many of the things, so many of the components, so many things that are living and growing that would not be living and growing if they were taken apart. They only work together. They only grow when they're, they're together. These things are obvious. So we might know that. We might know uh, uh, from, that, from that obvious work that there's some higher being. But so far beyond that, the Son of God, the Son of God took full human nature to himself. He took full human nature, and he is now and forever fully God and fully man. Can we understand all the intricacies of that? No. But we know it by faith, don't we? We know because we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We've been renewed. And our mind, when our mind was once hostile to God, We've been reconciled to him. He's forever both fully God and fully man. And that's our point of contact. That's where we can contact him. The great gap, this massive gap between the Godhead and fallen humanity has been bridged by Christ. In whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is amazing. So then that's our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And he affirms something for us. He affirms not only that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He tells us what we are. He affirms for us this truth in verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. You have been made complete. You lack nothing. You lack nothing that matters, nothing that we need for a life of godliness. We've been included in this. We are partakers of the divine nature, right? As Peter says, we're partakers of the divine nature. We don't need anything else. He is the pleroma. Of God, I like that. I like that word, the the Greek word. He's the pleroma of God. God literally passes Himself to us in Christ. Just amazing. There's no way to do justice to these just these three verses. But that's a that's a perfect tense word. He passes His completeness to us in Christ. We've been completed in Him. With eternal results. All through eternity, we have this. So, when you think about the fall of man and you think about what actually happened, it's pretty sad. When man fell, he fell into a, a, a sad state of incompleteness incompleteness, destruction, death, right? So, an unsaved person, an unsaved man or woman, is spiritually incomplete. They're totally out of fellowship with God. When we're unregenerate, that's where we are totally out of fellowship. That gap between God and man still exists for those who are unregenerate. He's morally bankrupt, incomplete, no standard of conduct. Not that that anyone could live up to that anyways. We've seen people try. We've seen people try to get there by works. We still see people try to get there by works. Ask around. You'll find people who are still trying to get to heaven by works. That old Jewish tradition is still in effect. Again, repackaged, but it's still there. But we are partakers of the divine nature. First or second Peter verse one, or chapter one, verse four. Sorry. Peter says, You become partakers of the divine nature. Think of that. A man instantly becomes spiritually complete instantly becomes spiritually complete he has fellowship with god he's reconciled to god and the life of god is in him 
or in her, in you. You don't need anything else. He has a standard. God has a standard. And the energizing Holy Spirit to give him the strength to obey when we're in Christ. That's what we have. That's what the, that's what the person, that's what you have. You have a standard now. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit to energize you. To work in you. To make you Christ-like. And I read a, uh, uh, an incredible quote that um, this week. That obedience. Obedience is the evidence that you're born again. Right? Because without that, without that we have no standard. We couldn't fulfill God's standard. But Christ in us is the hope of glory. Right? He is. We're made complete. Complete in every way. Spiritually complete. And now we have, we have a sense of who God is and we can grow in that. So I challenge you, I urge you, encourage you to one, consider, consider your position. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Because that's first and foremost. We can go no further without that. And then the other thing is, I encourage you to engage. Engage in this. But we're not fighting with the weapons of the world, are we? Now we're not fighting with the world's weapons. We're not fighting with the way the world does. We don't fight that way. But we take every thought captive, right, and make it obedient to Christ. Second Corinthians ten five. That's how we do it. We proclaim Christ. We embrace Christ as he is in his word, in his fullness. We embrace him because he is fully God and fully man. He is your reconciliation. This morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our time together. I thank you, Lord, to be with the uh, saints. It's just a joy to be with your saints, to be partakers of the divine nature with Abounding Grace Church. Lord, I thank you that, that a distance has no bearing on this, that time has no bearing. I, I come here, Lord, and, and see my brothers and sisters. I look out and see my brothers and sisters and know that we're in this together. We really are in this together. Lord, help us to exalt you. That's the key. It's not about dismantling these foolish arguments. It's not about engaging necessarily in these philosophies to try and break them down. No, we have Christ. We have the fullness of deity in bodily form, forever man, forever God, eternal the King, immortal, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the coming one. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You are the ruler of all. You are sovereign. You are holy. You are to be praised. You are to be worshipped. You are to be glorified and exalted in our lives. Oh, we don't deserve we don't deserve you, Lord. We do not deserve to come to you this way. Just the fact that you can, you can reconcile such a, a dichotomy, Lord, between sinful humans and God is utterly amazing to us. Lord, I pray that we would always be amazed by the cross, by your work, by all that you did for us that we could never do for ourselves. Lord, we pray for those in our lives whose eyes are closed to this, whose hearts are closed to this. Lord, I pray that, that 
as we proclaim Christ, as we exalt you, that you would open eyes of those who are lost in, in each of our lives that we know, that you'd open their eyes that they might hear the gospel and believe and be saved. Lord, you're glorified in this. We pray that you would use this. I pray for Abounding Grace Church, Lord, that you would continue to use them. Continue to work in this community mightily in and through them. We ask all this in Jesus' name, giving you praise. Amen.